Welcome to Out With Dan, the podcast that spotlights and examines the voices of LGBTQ authors, characters, and our allies. Together, we lift our voices and we tell our stories. I'm Dan White. Join me as I chat with this week's author. Hello and welcome back to Out with Dan. It's a special nonfiction Friday. Today I'm joined by Phil Gamboni to talk about Breaking the Rules, The Life of Ross Terrell. How are you, Phil? I am doing very well and greetings from Mexico where I'm spending the winter. Oh, I know so many people are going to be jealous. Very excited <laughs> for you and jealous at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> It it is it is rainy Los Angeles right now for some reason. Oh. <laughs> so this book is really quite interesting. I'm going to show this cover again. Um, tell us who Ross Terrell is. Sure. So Ross Terrell is one of the major scholars of modern China today. Um, he's probably got about a dozen books to his name. Um, most of them about Chinese history, Chinese politics. Um, he wrote a big biography of Mao Zedong. Um, he also wrote a biography of Madame Mao, um, which I, I think some people are, feel is his best and certainly most interesting book. Um, because he was born in Australia, he also wrote, I believe, two books um, about Australia, the history, culture of that country. Um, in addition to writing books, he taught at Harvard for a number of years in the government department and wrote tons and tons of newspaper pieces, op-ed pieces, um, magazine pieces, mostly again about China. In fact, um, when President Nixon was uh, preparing to go to China, um, for his very historic um, meeting, uh, which opened up U.S.-China relations, Henry Kissinger gave Nixon um, Ross's articles in the Atlantic Monthly um, wow. as preparatory material. He said, these are the pieces you need to read if you want to understand what modern China is all about. That's amazing. I mean, this is somebody who really... Uh, has has his fingerprints all over China and all over the U.S. government as well and policy because I mean when you're when Kissinger gives Nixon these kinds of articles you are certainly at the top of the heap as far as this absolutely absolutely his books have also been um, translated into Chinese and published in China so wow interestingly enough. Both his biography of Mao and of Madame Mao um, were bestsellers in China when they came out there. Wow. I can imagine breaking into a Chinese market is never easy, only because... No, it is not. Our cultures are very different. <laughs> yeah. He's got some stories about what it's like to deal with publishers in China. <laughs> this, um, I, I feel like... I got a front row seat as far as the inner workings. Cause so that I think uh, Nixon's trip to China was 1972. Is that right? That's correct. Yep. So yep. we're talking about right. it's, it's a bit of history, you know, from, 
from today's day, it's a bit of history back, but it's also at a time where the internet was didn't exist. So we didn't look up something on Google or a smartphone or even a computer. We really did have to rely on someone doing the research. And Absolutely. Ross definitely put in the legwork and the field work for this kind of research, because as you said, he was in the Atlantic Monthly. I noticed he was in a lot of different newspapers and magazines. He also became a correspondent on several TV shows and radio shows as well, right? That's right. And in fact, um, he was in Beijing during the Tiananmen Square um, massacres and uh, gave live eyewitness reports um, wow. about what was happening in Tiananmen Square in those days. So um, he's, you're absolutely right. He's had the finger on the pulse of China for more than 40 years now. I ended up um, getting to know Ross because in 1996, I was asked um, to teach English in Beijing through a program called School Year Abroad for actually American high school students okay. who uh, went to Beijing, lived with Chinese families, and um, in addition to learning Chinese, had to keep up with their high school math and English. So I was asked to be their English teacher in Beijing. So I said yes. It seemed like a very exciting uh, prospect but I was terrified that I was gonna have a semester in Beijing without any gay contacts, um, without knowing any gay people. And so a friend of mine who is a mutual friend of, of Ross's said, you need to talk to Ross Terrell. He's a gay man, he knows all about China, he'll be able to steer you uh, in the right direction. So Ross and I ended up having coffee a few months before I went to Beijing. And I have to say he wasn't very encouraging about gay prospects uh, oh. in Beijing at all. Um, considering what, as as you know, Dan, what, <laughs> what he confesses in the book, that, that seemed, um, at least in retrospect now, seems unusual. But he said, you know, gay life is extremely clandestine. Um, there may be one hotel where in the bar you can meet some people. Anyway, I went to Beijing sort of hopeless about, I thought, well, I'll have a celibate semester. And that turned out not to be the case. Um, I had a wonderful experience in Beijing, both as a, as a teacher, as somebody who was just learning about Chinese culture, Chinese history, and also met some really wonderful um, gay men in, in, in China. Um, if I can put in a plug for one of my own books, I subsequently wrote a novel called Beijing, um, oh, okay. which is very, very loosely based on my own experiences in, in Beijing. In any event, I returned um, from that uh, semester in China and, and Ross and I subsequently became friends. Um, we would meet for coffee in uh, Subsequent years, he invited me to his annual Christmas party, which was a big deal. Lots and lots of, um, of uh, scholars and writers and artists were there. Um, a few years ago, he ended up publishing a memoir called From Australian Bush to Tiananmen Square. And it oh, traced, okay. his, his, traced his history from the time he was born 
out in the Australian bush until um, the Tiananmen Square massacre. But that memoir um, was very circumspect about his his sex life. In fact, it was it was uh, uh, silent about his sex life. But Ross had always talked to me about wanting to eventually um, write about his sex life. He had been keeping a diary from at least the early 60s, if not earlier. Um, and uh, eventually that diary became very, very explicit about, to use your word, Dan, <laughs> is very busy um, sex um, life. Yes, I see. Go ahead. Uh, yes, uh, he was definitely a busy boy and a busy man, that's for sure. <laughs> so I, uh, yes. So, I told um, Paul before we started recording that in Wilt Chamberlain's autobiography, <laughs> Wilt Chamberlain estimated he'd had sex with 6,000 women. And while I don't know that Ross had sex with 6,000 men, he certainly was busy. And he and Wilt would have a lot to talk about. That's I for think sure. so. I think so. His sex, his gay sex life began um, actually at Harvard. It was, it was this Australian who came from a, a rather um, a constrained, repressed, uh, traditional Australian boarding school, college background. He was a pretty fervent Christian too. He comes to, to America and um, ex experiences um, the freedom uh, sexual freedom and other kinds of freedom that, that was available to him in the early 60s um, in America. And sort of, um, I, I want to say came out with a vengeance, but, but in fact, he lived a rather closeted life. Um, so his sex life, I think, began at Harvard. And once he got a taste of it, Wow, did he get business. <laughs> you know, so Phil, I love that because, you know, I think sometimes in life, you know, when I was growing up, my mother told me I hated squash. So I grew up believing I hated squash. But once I tasted one and realized I loved it, I wanted more squash. So that's my eggplant analogy with squash, I guess. But, you know, <laughs> Ross simply found out that he was free. And I think college yes. is often, especially for people who are a little bit older, college was that, I don't want to call it a breeding ground because that doesn't sound very positive, but college is our first time away from home that we really are rather free. We choose what time we want to take a class, what time we want to get up, what time we go to bed, and we choose to meet people that we might not have met in our insular bubble growing up. So right. here is Ross coming to Harvard with, an Australian accent. I'm sure that couldn't have hurt either. And, you know, <laughs> and all of those wonderful liberals of Massachusetts. So I think Ross found his home. <laughs> he did find his home. And um, when he published the memoir, that's when he approached me and he said, you know, the memoir is completely silent about my sex life. I'm now in my 80s. I really want to tell the other story of Ross Terrell. And I've got this journal that I've been keeping forever. And would you, it's too long. It's got to be cut down. It's got to be edited. I'd like you, he said to me, to um, 
make the selections and and edit the journal. So I said, sure, this sounds like a really interesting project. It turned out to be a much more complex project than I ever had imagined. Um, yes. I, I, I think I talk about this a little bit in, in the introduction that I wrote to the book. Um, when Ross first started the journal, um, he, he was handwriting it. Then um, when the first computers came along, um, I don't know if you're old enough to remember this, Dan, but they were th these, these sort of word processing machines mm -hmm. called K-Pros. Mm -hmm. So for a while, he, he kept the journal on a K-Pro. And then as technology advanced, he would keep switching computers, laptops, et cetera, desktops, et cetera. So he ended up with literally thousands of pages of documents on all sorts of different machines. <laughs> when, when he went to convert from one machine to another, some of it became gobbledygook. So I was handed hundreds, hundreds, hundreds of pages of, of these journals not particularly in chronological order either. Oh, Lord. So, so my job as the editor was to put it in chronological order, um, decide on the proper balance between the passages in which he talked about his scholarly life, his writing life, his publishing life, his traveling life, and his sex life. Um, so a project that I thought would take six months ended up taking over two and a half years i i can imagine when i use the word exhaustive i do not jest because i've never seen except maybe a 12 year old girl who's in love with a classmate i've never seen someone keep a journal that is so specific yes some of the things are mundane but everybody has mundane in their life so but Ross would talk about having been to a cocktail party with uh, John F. Kennedy's sister, and he was talking to her. And then he talks about going home and having sex. And it is yes. just, it is just as matter of fact with one conversation as the other. Uh, I think matter of fact I, is a great word. He he was very matter of fact about yeah, it. Was, this happened. It, this yes. happened. And I yes. think it's also it's to me it's a nice thing to see someone. We talked a little bit about this before we started recording. Some people come with an idea of one partner, one life, and they stay together. Divorce happens. Not everybody can attain that. Some people don't do that. Some people are more like the animal kingdom where they roam from partner to partner. And there's nothing wrong with either way, whichever way suits your life. Ross seemed to have been very happy with the life he chose. I don't see I any. I think you're absolutely me. right. Yeah, uh, th there's not a lot of guilt or shame um, no. in, in in the diary. He seems to have very early on decided that he was a voraciously sexual being who enjoyed yes. having sex with lots of men um, from of all races on yes. all continents of of, of the world. And um, that, yes, maybe he was looking for a life partner, but he wasn't going to curb his sex life while he tried to find that life partner.
It was like, it was an exuberant sex life. Absolutely, absolutely. I did write down a couple of things because I wanted to highlight them because my memory is good, but sometimes it's not so good. Here is a bit of Ross's humor. With boyfriends like dentures, it is wise to have a spare. Something can go wrong with number one. I mean, and it is it's simply a journal entry and it's just very matter of fact. It yep. is not is and one of the things and another thing to highlight, he has a doctor's visit, and I don't think he's recounting to the doctor. I think he's recounting only to himself. But he he notices that he's had 52 people that he's had sex with at least three times in the past year. And when you start looking at that, if it were 52 people he met on a street corner, that's one thing. But he also had a very active sex life with some of the same people for years. Yes. And I think that, so in his way, maybe he had life partners with an S, not one. He had multiples because I see some of the same names being repeated over over a long period of time. And I find that to be very interesting. Um, absolutely. Speaking of names, one of the things that Ross and I and also uh, our editor at Rattling Good Yarns Press um, decided on is that we needed to use pseudonyms. Um, many of these men um, very sadly succumbed to AIDS. Um, others are still very much alive. And, and we made a decision that we would use pseudonyms throughout the book to protect everybody's privacy. So um, that's one thing that uh, people should probably be uh, aware of is but at one point, um, my editor at Routling Good Yarns Press and I um, started to keep a glossary of all of the names. <laughs> well, I think Ross you have to. Yeah, Ross decided he, he that he didn't want to publish the glossary, maybe just because it was too long. <laughs> um, but you're absolutely right, Dan. There, there were men that he had um, uh, many year-long relationships with that he was very passionate about um, at the same time that he was giving himself permission to, to, to be busy, to dally with, with other men. There's, at one point in my introduction, I say his life was a little like a, a, a French farce by Feydeau, where you'd have one man exiting one door after um, a a little sex hookup and another one entering 10 minutes later. And um, parts of it are just very, very funny and very entertaining. I should say at the same point that Ross himself, while never feeling guilty or ashamed, did wonder at times whether he was a sex addict, whether it was getting out of control. Um, the amazing thing about his life is that he could maintain such a robust sex life and at the same time keep up um, his academic and scholarly and writing career. There, there was never a time when um, uh, he, he missed a deadline or, or failed to, to do his writing. Somehow um, he was such a passionate person. He was, he was a championship squash player, um, uh, a gourmet uh, restaurateur, uh, this he had this voracious sex life and he had this amazing scholarly career and somehow he managed to balance it all. 
And I suspect, this is me guessing, but I suspect that one aspect of his life simply fueled the other aspects of his life. I think that because he was very passionate about sex and romance, he was passionate about food and about working and writing and traveling. I think that that gives him, in my estimation, a happy life. I mean, he's someone who clearly says, I fly first class. I go first class everywhere I go. You notice that when he talks about hotels and stuff, he's not staying at the Motel 6. He's staying at, you know, the biggest and the best in Marrakesh. And yes. I, do want, I do want to talk about his, one of the trips to Marrakesh, he talks about hooking up with the waiter. And then there was yes. another gentleman from another table who hooked up with another waiter. And I, so that made me a little surprised when he gave you sort of a little bit of a rain cloud about going to Beijing. I mean, here's a man who goes to Marrakesh and hooks up with a waiter. Perhaps he didn't see you that way, Phil. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? So I just, <laughs> I mean, I wonder, I wonder if Ross thought when he went to Beijing, would he be, would he be celibate or would he be out finding someone? So maybe he was meant, he was, channeling you i don't know it's hard to know because he's well, it is hard to know and i've never i've never asked him that or confronted uh him <laughs> about that but i remember i as i was uh, editing his diaries reading my own and and reading that entry where i said you know ross was not very uh encouraging about uh my going to beijing and finding um gay men so i to be fair to him um Beijing and Marrakesh are not the same. And no, Beijing no, back, true. certainly Beijing when Ross was going there um, a lot in the 70s and 80s was a very repressive place and a very yes. dangerous place for gay men. Even when I was there in 1996, um, and this has changed, but in 1996, there really was only one gay bar. And I remember one night I was there and suddenly everybody cleared out. And I said to the bartender, what's going on? And he said, we just got a phone call that the police are going to raid the place. So uh, the, the Americans were still standing, sitting there, standing there, having their drinks. But every Chinese man got up and left. Gone, gone. So and you that know, was 1996. So I want to, and I I am always a little reticent to to have any kind of law enforcement bashing because i i'm very appreciative of law enforcement but in let's see i wrote this one down to in 1987 ross is arrested in boston and yes. of course when i when i get to that i'm assuming that it's a hookup gone wrong i mean i hate to say that but it's it's the first thing my mind went to and of it course. could be sure. it couldn't have been further from the truth he was he was sort of in wrong place wrong time and he got arrested and he spent 16 hours in jail. And I, it's one of the longer passages. Yes. Because he, yes. he recounts how he felt and all that. I've never been arrested, so I don't know how it is. But I, you know, we talk about other countries being repressed and, and things not being in the best place. But here was a man who spent 16 hours in jail when he shouldn't have been in jail for one hour. And that was in Boston. And this was right. 1987. So how some things have changed for the better all around the world. We still have things in our own country we have to work on. So that's my soapbox. I will yield my soapbox now. <laughs> well, and, 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 and may I say, just to be on my soapbox for a second, that if um, 
if Mr. Trump is reelected, I I shudder to think of, about what um, yes yes what the situation is going to be like for 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 LGBTQ people. Absolutely, I think we so, in a in a we did we deserve to be just like everyone else. But I think we dodged a bullet during his first presidency. How we how that happened, I don't know, but I'm very thankful for. I think a return to office for him, he is out to get everyone he can get. And so it's like I we don't need that kind of craziness for sure. So everybody listening, get out and vote and please. Absolutely. And and if someone needs a ride to the polls, take them. Or call me, I'll buy a cab for them. So um, so tell me what is your favorite, was there a biggest moment or biggest shock moment? Either one, biggest moment of a, oh my goodness or was there an oh my goodness moment in editing? Well, this? I, for, for me, certainly some of the most poignant moments were um, Ross's, Ross's struggles um, to be faithful to two or three different um, partners um, over the years. Um, the, the, maybe the most poignant is his very first boyfriend who was um, an undergraduate at Harvard, a, a, a Thai boy um, who uh, died of AIDS. And I think that was I think that was a loss for Ross that I'm not sure he ever got over. He he still um, mentions this this young man that that he was deeply in love with. But there were two or three others uh, that he was also deeply in love with, and real I think really struggled with how do I maintain a partnership and at the same time um, continue to enjoy the kind of robust. Um, promiscuous sex life that that um, I've had. So that for me, that was one of the most interesting um, aspects of the book. It the book ends. Was. I was just going to say the book ends um, at the very end of the '80s when Ross meets um, a man at the YMCA, uh, and again we we used a, a, a pseudonym there who actually then became a, a kind of life partner for the next uh, 30 years of, of his life and, and continues to have a, um, uh, an affectionate relationship with him. Uh, not, that that, not that that put the cap on, on the busyness. But, um, <laughs> no, I don't. You know, he would disappoint me if it had, I'll be honest with you. You know, <laughs> I, I love the fact that as I said earlier, you know, he had a busy life, but he also talks very directly about it. He doesn't pull any punches. And I also am very right. appreciative he doesn't look on with a lot of guilt because then I, yeah. I, I remember the jazz singer Ruth Brown used to say, if you're bold enough to do it, be bold enough to own it. So, you know, there's yep. no need to feeling sorry for it. Once you've done it, you should be happy with what the, the decision you made. A lot of older readers of the book, I think, will also feel um, a connection with um, this sort of undercurrent that runs through a lot of the journal um, during the AIDS years. R Ross got tested multiple times. Um, he he never seroconverted. He he remained HIV negative, um, 
but it, it's sort of a, a miracle that he did because they, he and his partners didn't always practice safe sex. Um, but he also ended up going to, and this he describes in, in the book as well, the funerals of two or three um, of his partners who, who did succumb to AIDS. So that's a, uh, you know, Dan, one of the reasons I decided to do this book um, was uh, I firmly believe in, in, in gay documentation. And, and, and um, uh, I don't think Ross, certainly not I, certainly not um, our editors at Rattling Good Yarns Press are trying to say that this book is um, a description of the way gay life should be or that the way mm -hmm. all gay lives have been. But I think it's a very important document to, to um, describe the life of one, um, one gay man during the 60s and 70s and 80s who worked out for himself without a lot of... Um, without a lot of resources, uh, how he was going to, to be a gay man in the world. And I think it's important that we have books like that for future generations to see there are many, many, many ways of being a gay man in the world. Absolutely. It, it, Ross's life is not the life I would have chosen for myself or have chosen for myself, but, um, you know, as I think you and I agree, Dan, uh, it, it, it's, a, it, it's a life and it's a man who worked out for himself how he was going to be gay in the world. And I, I applaud him for that. So do I. And we can't silence voices just because someone doesn't agree with them. It's important Correct. to see all facets of life. I mean, I read lots of romance novels, um, but it doesn't mean everybody's romantic. I read lots of mystery novels where people are killed. It doesn't mean I'm going to go kill someone. But it is important that we get voices out there because this is also not just, oh, I had sex with a lot of people. This is somebody who had a very important life as well as having a robust sexual activity. So I'm, I like having somebody that I would say is a fully formed person. So that's, that was an interesting read for me. Thank you. Glad you liked it. Thank you very much. Do you have a social media or a website you'd like to share? So my website is Philip with one L, Philip Gamboni, all one word, um, dot com. And uh, if people are interested in the book, you can certainly find it on um, Amazon or uh, through the publisher, Rattling Good Yarns Press. Um, they're in Palm Springs, California. They are a, a wonderful, small uh, LGBTQ press whose mission is really to bring books that mainstream publishers are not interested in or shy away from to the public. They've done a, they've been in business, I think, five or six years now, um, and they've done a great job with this book. Um, they, they brought out my memoir about tracing the route that my father made across Europe during the Second World War. They're bringing out um, uh, my second collection of short stories this spring. I want to nice. put in a plug for my friend yes. Dale Mitchell, um, who also uh, just published with them a wonderful book called um, Hippie 
Faggot Freak, which is a memoir of his journey toward gay radicalism. So uh, Rattling Good Yarns Press is, is the website to go to if you're interested in any of these books. Um, and uh, yeah, I hope a lot of your your listeners and your readers will will take a look at Ross's memoir or his diary, I should say. Right, I agree. Again, it's called Breaking the Rules. Thank you, Phil, for joining me. I appreciate it very much. My pleasure, Dan. Nice to talk to you. Good talking to you too. Hang on for me just a second. Thank you for joining me for this week's episode of Out with Dan. You can find more information about this podcast and its host at outwithdan.com, on Twitter at outwithdan, and on Instagram and Facebook at gooutwithdan. This podcast is hosted by Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, and the theme music is provided by bensound.com. Join us again soon for the next episode of Out With Dan.